Hello, and welcome back to Undressed Historia, a podcast that discusses women in history and their legacy. I'm your host, Margot Collins. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's listened in and given me feedback. I'm glad that people are enjoying the podcast so far, and your feedback really does mean a lot to me, so please keep it coming. Also, I'm getting over a cold, that's why my voice is a little bit different today. Anyway, today's episode is on Jeanne d'Arc, or as we usually say in English, Joan of Arc. She was also known as the Maid or La Pucelle. Before we get into her life and her significance, we need to go over two things to understand her story. The first thing is the social structure of medieval France, and the second is the Hundred Years' War, which Joan entered towards the end. But don't worry, I won't be talking too long about either subject. However, there's one thing I want to mention before we get started, and it's religion. Joan of Arc, along with pretty much everyone in Europe during her lifetime, was religious. Or rather, that's how we would label them now. Back then, it was a part of their life. There really wasn't a secular anything. They felt God was with them in everything. So when I discuss God, Joan of Arc hearing voices of God's messengers and people accepting it with little or no issue, I'm not trying to push a religious agenda here. I also won't try to interpret those events to fit today. I'm staying within a medieval context for her story, so please don't be offended. But understand that religion was a huge part of medieval society. So, without further delay... Medieval society was divided into three separate estates or orders, based on duty those who fight, those who pray, and those who work. The nobility made up the first estate, the one that fought and therefore ruled, so royalty and knights. Their duty was to protect everyone from invaders and other outside threats. Originally, the first estate was separated into two classes, lords and knights. However, by the 13th century, they became one single order. The second estate, those who prayed, were the clergy, so monks, nuns, priests, and other members of the Catholic Church. They had a duty to pray for all and guide others through spiritual advice. The third estate was made up of those who work, essentially everyone else, like merchants, artisans, and peasants. This social structure wasn't egalitarian by any means. However, it did emphasize a mutual obligation to do one's duty for society. So, in addition to comparing medieval society to the traditional pyramid, with the nobility at the top, clergy in the middle, and everyone else at the bottom, you can also imagine society as a pie, cut into three uneven slices. And only when all three pieces come together, the pie is a whole society. So where did the women fit in all of this? They were members of each estate, of course. However, they weren't considered as equals to their male counterpart. Women were more limited than men of the same class in terms of property ownership, inheritance, legal rights, economic and education opportunities, and formal political power. Of course, the extent of these limitations varied from kingdom to kingdom and estate. The point I want to make here is that the claims and accusations presented in Jones' trial were more based on violations against the social hierarchy and less on gender roles. Don't get me wrong here, politics played a huge part in her trial, and we'll get to that later, but for now I just wanted to explain the layout of medieval society. So now here's a quick overview of the Hundred Years' War. It lasted for 116 years, 
and was a series of short periods of warfare mixed in with longer periods of truce. The war started in 1337, and there was no one single cause, but instead there were multiple. To summarize, it started with ongoing English claims to French territory, mainly Gascony, which is located in the southwest of France. Then, the French and English were competing for control of Flanders. Next was the question of succession to the French throne, when Charles IV died in 1328 without an heir. There were two men with claims to the throne, Edward III of England, who had a claim through his mother, and Philip of Valois, who also had a claim to the throne through his father. While Edward III had the stronger claim, the French nobility were not happy at all about an English king, so they invented a new law that stated it was through an ancient custom of the Franks that succession couldn't be passed through a woman. So Philip of Valois became King Philip VI. Edward III at first accepted this, but then in 1337 he used it as an excuse for war. Both monarchs were also very chivalrous, and so were many nobles on both sides, so they welcomed the thought of a war. They felt it would bring out adventure, honor, and riches. There were English victories at Crecy in 1346 and Pointier in 1356. But then later in the century, Edward III died and was succeeded by Richard II, right about the time French victories took away many English acquisitions. When Henry V was King of England, he won a massive victory over the French at Agincourt in 1415, and things were looking bleak for the French at this point. So at this point, I'm going to switch directions here and start with our story of Joan of Arc. But keep in the back of your mind that the war had been going off and on for about 75 years at this point, and in the beginning of the 15th century, it looked like the English would win. Also, this wasn't the only thing going on in Europe. Before the war started, Europe experienced the worst famine in its history that took out at least 10% of the population. The Great Famine, as it's referred to, started in 1315, and Europe didn't recover until 1322. And of course, there was what we call the Black Death, which back then was generally referred to as the Great Pestilence, Great Plague, or Great Death. Side note, the term Black Death was actually first introduced in 1833. Anyway, it arrived in Europe in 1347 and took out roughly one-third of the population of Europe. The plague would return again and again throughout the 15th century, and then less frequently in the 16th and 17th centuries. This was the world Joan of Arc was born into, one that saw famine, disease, and war. Joan of Arc was born around 1412 in the village of Donremy. Her parents were farmers and therefore belonged to the third estate, those who work. Her village was loyal to the Dauphin, which for those who don't know is the French term for the heir to the throne, and there were some nearby villages that chose to support Burgundy which meant they were loyal to the English. She had no formal education and was illiterate, and as a result, she spoke very plainly and to the point. Her letters and other correspondence were written down by a scribe, and only towards the end of her life do we see documents with what we believe is her signature, which was most likely achieved through the help of others. Growing up, her mother taught her a few prayers, which was typical for a girl of her social class. It's recorded that she was very devout as a child. 
Around the age of 13, Joan started to hear voices carrying a message from God. The message was that she was the chosen one to restore France and its rightful king, Charles, to the throne. When she was about 16, Don Remy and surrounding villages were burned down by the English, and Joan relocated to Neufchâteau, so she was well aware of the toll the war was taking on everyone. Early on in her life, Joan decided to remain chaste, that is, a virgin, so her parents were probably upset that she refused the husband they had chosen for her. She did not tell her parents about the voices or what they told her. Legend has it that her father dreamt that Joan would join the soldiers, and he advised his sons to drown her should that happen. At age 17, she left her family and went to Valcourleur, where she petitioned the local captain there, a man named Robert de Bendricourt, to take her to Chinon to see the dolphin, the future King Charles VII. He didn't believe Joan at first, but eventually he did, and gave her a horse, a knight, a squire, and four servants. Joan then set off on an 11-day journey to Chinon, which gave her time to practice riding and get used to her new clothes, those of a man. Just a quick note on the two things I just mentioned that will come up again and again in her story, and that is the voices in wearing men's clothes. I'll be discussing both in better detail when we get to her trial, but I just wanted to take a quick second and explain that I'm sort of glossing over those two things now because I'll get to both later. Just for now, know that while certain aspects of both are unique to Joan, she wasn't the only woman in the medieval age to hear voices and dress as a man. So now we're at late February, early March of 1429, when Joan arrived at Chinon to meet the Dauphin. Joan later said at her trial that the voices led her right to him, and she was able to identify him in a room filled with people, despite not knowing what he looked like beforehand. We're not sure exactly what was said that day in Chinon, but we know what happened after. Charles decided he believed her, but first he had to make sure she was who she claimed to be, that is, a messenger of God. He sent her to Pointier, and she was examined for three weeks by a tribunal. After that period, she was granted soldiers, a knight, a page, and a squire. While she was at Pointier, she had a letter dictated and then sent to the English commanders at Orléans. There's actually a few versions that exist, and in fact, the one that was read back to her at the trial, Joan stated that there were three phrases in the letter she didn't say, but the rest of the contents were more or less correct. To summarize the letter, she stated that God was on the side of France and a French king, and the English needed to leave and go back home. Also, if they didn't leave willingly, she would make them leave, as that was she was sent to do. I'm going to read a bit of an English translation, which states, after she said that they must leave, quote, King of England, if you do not do so, wherever I come across your troops in France, if they are not willing to obey, I shall make them leave, willing or not. And if they are willing to obey, I will have mercy upon them. Know that if they will not obey, the maiden is coming to wipe them out. She comes on behalf of the King of Heaven to drive you out of France. And the maiden promises and guarantees that she will cause such a great clash of arms there that not for a thousand years has another one so great been seen in France if you do not do right. End quote. Now, grammatically, that's a bit rough, but the message is clear and direct to the point. 
This 17-year-old isn't messing around. That letter was dated the 22nd of March, and on the 24th of April, she left Tours with military equipment and her soldiers for Blois, and the week after that, they made their way towards Orléans to rejoin the troops there. Now, the Siege of Orléans is important to both Joan's legacy and the Hundred Years' War. Orléans is located in north-central France on the Loire River, and at the time was the most northern city loyal to Charles. The Siege of Orléans started in October of 1428, and at the time of Joan's arrival, the following April, it wasn't looking good for the French. Joan wanted to arrive in Orléans on the right bank of the Loire River, as per what the voices told her. However, the commander of the French forces there, a man named Dunois, led the soldiers on the left bank to avoid as many English as possible. Dunois also went by the nickname the Bastard of Orléans, and he comes up quite a bit, so I wanted to mention both names to avoid confusion later. Anyway, when Joan realized they weren't following what the voices told her to do, a miracle happened. In Dunois' account, and I'll quote him here, after Joan confronted him saying they deceived her, she said she brought better help, meaning God's help, to which Dunois reported, quote, Immediately at that very moment, the wind, which had been adverse and absolutely prevented the ships carrying the provisions for the city of Orléans from putting out, changed and became favorable, end quote. The wind change then allowed Joan and others as well as much-needed supplies to reach the city, where the townspeople cheered when they saw Joan, as news of the maid's mission arrived well before her actual arrival. One by one, English fortresses around Orléans fell to the French. On the 8th of May, 1429, just less than two weeks after Joan's arrival, the siege was lifted, and the remaining English left for other positions along the river. So what did Joan do during these battles? Accounts show that she carried a banner and encouraged the troops. She preferred a banner to a weapon, as she didn't want to kill anyone. She rode among the troops instead of encouraging them from a safe distance. In fact, during the assault on the Touré, Joan was hit by an arrow between the neck and shoulder while helping the soldiers set up a scaling ladder. She was carried away from the battle but returned later in the day, and that was the final battle that ended the siege. She was also present at each war council, and it was there she displayed leadership and perseverance. The other members of the council tried to delay action almost each day, but Joan would insist to, quote-unquote, go boldly, to which I interpret that as no more stalling, only quick, direct attacks against the English so they wouldn't have the chance to regroup. While that course of action cost a lot of men's lives and supplies, it was more effective than any other previous attempt to stop English momentum. It also started to demoralize the English as well. Orléans was a turning point in the Hundred Years' War. It wasn't a decisive victory that determined who would win the war, but it commenced the French resurgence of both military victories and morale. And while Joan didn't do any actual fighting at Orléans, her presence and actions were a key part to the French victory. Orléans was a key part of Joan's legacy as well, as the outcome was the proof that Charles, as well as others, needed to place their full trust in her and her divine mission. After the siege was lifted, Joan was finally given military command, 
whereas before her advice pretty much fell on deaf ears. So I mentioned before that the French believed wholeheartedly in Joan, and after Orléans, any who had their doubts had their proof of what Joan was capable of. For the people of Orléans, she was a prophesied heroine, which more on that later, but when they saw her, they cheered. One man from the city remarked that, quote, she was received with so much joy and cheering by all the men and women that it was as if she were an angel of God, end quote. But what did the English think of her? When Joan first arrived at Orléans, she sent another message to the English, stating the same as the first, lift the siege and leave for England, or else she would force them out. Denois, a.k.a. the Bastard, also added a warning that English prisoners in Orléans would be killed if the English failed to do what Joan demanded. The messengers returned to Joan with a reply from the English that stated, quote, they would burn her, for she was nothing but a whore, and that she should return to tending cows, end quote. After the French victory at ending the siege of Orléans, the English had increased problems of desertions and recruiting, to which the Duke of Bedford blamed Joan. So they weren't happy about Joan, and there were multiple accounts of the English calling Joan a whore. I can't imagine a bigger insult for her, a young woman who wanted to remain a virgin her whole life to the point of defying her parents' plan of marrying her off. But there was another name that the English started to refer to Joan as, one that started after her recovery from her injury at Les Tourelles, one that made them terrified of her. That name would be Witch. There was a month pause before the next battle. In the meantime, Joan and the Bastard went to Charles and asked for more soldiers as lifting the siege at Orléans left them only about 2,000 men in the army. On June 11th, Joan and the Duke of Alencon, who Charles newly appointed as leader of the French army, arrived at Jargeau with the soldiers and artillery. As before, she warned the people in the town of Jargeau to hand the town over to God and Charles willingly to avoid harm, otherwise they would attack. The English wanted a month delay, to which Joan's party were not willing to let them have, as that would give the English enough time to bring in reinforcements. This time, Joan was actively fighting at the Battle of Jargeau. She was injured again as well. This time, while climbing a ladder, a stone hit her in the head. She was wearing a helmet, but it was still a heavy blow that it knocked her to the ground. She got up and kept encouraging the soldiers to move forward. The battle resulted in French victory, and the Earl of Suffolk captured and taken prisoner to Orléans. After that, there were three more battles that resulted in French victory. The Battle of Mont-sur-Loire, Battle of Beaugency, and the Battle of Patay. Joan was not present at the Battle of Patay, but that final battle there wiped the English out of the Loire Valley. Finally, Joan decided it was time for Charles to be crowned king at Reims. While Charles was already king in name at this point, he had not yet been coronated, and Reims was the traditional location for French coronations. After some delays on Charles's part, the army finally left for Reims at the end of June 1429. Now, of course, Joan was present at the coronation, but the interesting part of her story is what she did on the way there. She dictated letters to towns that they would be passing through or nearby 
for the townspeople to recognize Charles as the King of France. The first was Troyes, one that sided with the English, who ended up surrendering. After Troyes, the other villages and towns followed. She would send her men to deliver the message to, quote, hand it over to the King of Heaven and the noble King Charles, end quote. And for those that refused, she went there in person and, quote unquote, all obeyed. Let's just take a quick pause to let that all set in. We have a teenage girl going to these towns that refuse to support or acknowledge Charles as the, I'll say, rightful ruler, and they change their minds after they see or hear from her in person. So what did she do or what was so convincing or maybe even intimidating about her that, quote-unquote, all obeyed? We can even go further back. What exactly was it about Joan that made these war-hardened men like the Bastard and Alacon put their trust in her. Now, before Joan had even left her parents and started her journey, there were prophecies about a maid who would save France. One of these came from Marie Robin of Avignon, and it's dated sometime between 1398 and 1399. Marie d'Avignon had a vision of plates of armor presented to her, which made her terrified, thinking she would have to take up the armor herself and fight. The vision then told her to not be afraid, as she would not be carrying weapons, but there would be a maiden who would be armed and save France from its enemies. The 12th century writer Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote The Prophecies of Merlin, had written in one of the Merlin prophecies of a maid who came from the forest that would work miracles and, quote, fill the island, meaning England, with a horrible clamor, end quote. After Joan met Charles, but before she set off for Orléans, preparations were made to announce Joan to the world. There were several theological essays that circulated among theologians that discussed Joan, gender, prophecy, and France. The court of Charles started to spread word of new or elaborated prophecies tailored specifically for Joan. The ones I mentioned from Merlin were borrowed, and a new prophecy was composed in Latin, French, and German that stated, quote, The virgin, her maidenly limbs clothed in male attire at God's prompting, hurries to raise up the fallen lily-bearer and king, and to destroy the abominable enemies, especially those who were now at Orléans, outside the city, and beset it with a siege. And if men have a mind to commit themselves to war, and to follow her arms, which the kindly maid now prepares, she believes that the deceitful English will also succumb to death when the French overthrow them with maidenly war, and then there will be an end to fighting." End quote. All of this helped Joan to be accepted by the army and people of France, and her actions, meaning be involved in battle, getting injured, piety, and good military intuition at Orléans and after helped solidify her role as the prophesized maid. But what about her personality? Given what I've said so far, we see a confident, pious, tough, stubborn, and bossy young woman. She forbade her men to consort with loose women and from swearing. She encouraged them to hear mass and go to confession in order to maintain good morals. When any disobeyed, she would take out her sword and threaten them. She also had a bit of a violent side when angry. 
Alencon stated that once he saw Joan break her sword on a female camp follower's back, who was found living with the soldiers. She also had a lighter side, and it was said that she would joke around with the soldiers from time to time, and that both men and women were impressed by her wisdom, honesty, and piety. Going back to her story, Joan was present at the coronation of Charles VII at Reims on July 17, 1429. It was right about that time that Charles and Joan's plans began to differ. Charles and one of his officials were secretly negotiating a 15-day truce with the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good. Joan, however, was a soldier and wanted to keep fighting. After Reims, they slowly made their way to Paris. On August 17th, they arrived in Compigny, and the royal army, including Joan and Alecon, left for Paris on the 23rd, leaving the king behind. Charles VII did authorize an attack on Paris, but he was also negotiating to extend the truce until Christmas. The assault on Paris on September 8th would be Joan's first loss. Paris was protected by two moats and 30-foot-high walls. The attack lasted hours, and Joan herself was injured once again. This time she was struck in the thigh by an arrow from a crossbow. Joan wanted to keep fighting, but she was taken back safely, and Charles ordered a withdrawal. Charles retreated back to the Loire. On September 21st, he disbanded the army, sending commanders to other regions and Alecon back to his wife. Joan was both angry and devastated at all of this, and it was understandable. With one battle lost, she also lost her army, her brother-in-arms, Alecon, not to mention her confidence in both herself and her leadership. We can imagine that Joan was disappointed in Charles as well. While she was a quick learner, politics were not her strong suit, and her strategy of overwhelming the English by not giving them time to recover between battles worked. So what would be the point of negotiating a temporary truce? It would be over a month before Joan's next battle. On November 4th, the town of Saint-Pierre-le-Motiers fell to Joan's forces. Next would be the siege of La Charité. Unfortunately, Joan had an insufficient number of men and equipment, and about a month after its start, Joan had to lift the siege and leave. At this point, Joan was unhappy. Her momentum of victories was completely gone. Charles knew how she felt and rewarded her for her victories by ennobling her and her family line. He had also previously granted a tax exemption to the inhabitants of Domremy for Joan's services. He was hoping she would take the hint and retire. He felt he didn't need her anymore, as his plans were to negotiate for peace, and her plan was to keep fighting, but the soldiers and people were still very supportive of her, so he couldn't just get rid of her. In March of 1430, she dictated letters, mainly addressing enemies of the faith. In April, she was back to fighting victorious at Lanly-sur-Marne. That victory was what Joan and her soldiers needed to restore their faith in themselves, and it also increased English fears. The truce with Burgundy was officially over on April 16th of that year, and Joan must have been anxious to fight again. She spent the rest of April and early May in and out of Compagnie. And that's where I'm going to have to leave this for now. 
Next week, I'll be discussing her capture, trial, death, and legacy. So please tune in next week for the conclusion on Joan of Arc. With this episode concluded, I request that you review my podcast on iTunes and any other app you get your podcast from. Currently, we're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, as well as a few other locations. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated, and I can be reached by email at undressedhistoria at gmail.com, as well as other social media platforms. Undressed Historia is researched, written, and produced by me, Margot Collins. If you enjoy this podcast, you can follow me on the following social media platforms to stay up to date on everything happening. Our Instagram and Facebook is Undressed Historia Podcast, and our Twitter is Historia underscore pod. Thanks again and tune in next time.